The scripture reading for today's sermon will be from Revelation 17, verses 6 through 8. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come, out, uh, come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. Uncertainty often triggers anxiety and speculation. How do we view and respond to times of uncertainty without panic? The book of Revelation provides a lens to see our present day in light of what is to come. No matter what has happened or will happen, King Jesus always has the last word. We are continuing in our series on Revelation, and so if you have a Bible today or on your device and you want to follow along, go to Revelation chapter 17. We're actually going to try to cover a lot of ground this morning, chapter 17, 18, and 19, but we'll start in 17. We're glad you're here, especially if you're our guest today. We welcome you. I don't know if you saw the story last week about a hiker in Colorado who got lost. Turns out the Lake County Search and Rescue team got a call, a report, that a hiker left that morning at 9 a.m. to climb Mount Elbert in Colorado and by 8 p.m., when it was, of course, dark, he had still not returned, and they were concerned. And so search and rescue workers first called the hiker, and there was no answer. They called several times, no answer, so they got a little bit concerned, so they sent out a team of five searchers to an area where people often get turned around and get lost on that trail. And they looked for this hiker until 3 a.m., and then at 7 a.m., they sent out another team of three searchers to a new area to look there. Well, at 9.30 a.m. that next morning, they received a phone call that the hiker had, in fact, made it down and was back to the place where he was staying. Turns out, about nightfall, he lost his way, he lost the trail, and he spent literally all night looking for the trail. And he finally found it and eventually made his way back to the trailhead where his car was parked, and then he went on his way. And so they asked him, hey, did you get our phone calls? We tried to call you several times. And this is what he said. He said, I don't answer calls when I don't recognize the number. <laughs> now, I am against spam and telemarketers, but I think if I'm lost on a mountain, and someone calls me, I probably will try to answer that just in case. I mean, if nothing else, I can tell the telemarketer, hey, while you're trying to sell me something, could you call 911, please? <laughs> I think in many ways, Revelation is that call. It is a call to you and to me checking in on us, saying, are you still on the right path? Is there a chance that you've lost your way? Are you still doing okay? And as we have said, yes, Revelation is a letter, it is a message of hope and reassurance for those first century Christians who are living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. They are being persecuted. They need a word of hope. And so certainly Revelation is that. It is also, as we said last week, an interpretive lens to better understand what is happening in light of what is to come. 
But I think in many ways, Revelation is that call, that warning, that wake up. It is that checking in, that health check to say, just want to make sure you haven't lost your way. Because the truth is, life as a follower of Christ is not always easy. Sometimes it's easy to lose the trail. It usually just starts with one step in the wrong direction. And so maybe this morning Jesus is calling us. In fact, at the very beginning of the letter, in one of the specific letters to one of the churches, in chapter 3, verse 20, what does it say? Jesus says, here I am at the door. Here I am knocking on your door. And maybe this morning Jesus is calling you. Maybe he is standing at your door and knocking. And he has a message for you. As we think about what it means to live in the kingdom of God, rather than in a world that often tries to pull us away from God, we think about the first century and these Christians. And it's so easy for us just to point fingers at the Roman Empire, this powerful pagan Roman Empire, and specifically the blasphemous practice of emperor worship, declaring Caesar is Lord rather than Jesus is Lord. It's easy for us to stand here all these years later and point back and say, man, that is evil, that is wrong. And it's even relatively easy for us in our day, in our time, to look at external forces that oppose the will of God, that stand against the kingdom of God, and say, those things are evil, they are wrong. And there are a lot of those forces out there, aren't there? Things like the media, we like to point fingers at the media. Things like politics and politicians and government. And then all the things that we bunch under the heading of culture all the things in the culture it's so easy for us to point fingers and say those things are opposed to the kingdom of God and sometimes there's a lot of truth to that but let me ask you how many of us how many of us are completely unentangled by those worldly powers those earthly things that we so often denounce take a moment to be really honest with yourself Can you say that you are completely unentangled by all of these worldly things, these things that try to pull for our attention, these things that appeal to us? As Christians, we are against greed and materialism. But how often do we find ourselves as active participants in a culture of consumerism, at least on some level? As Christians, we oppose violence, And yet, so many times we find ways to justify and rationalize violence if it is used to preserve and to protect something that I value, even if what I value doesn't represent the kingdom of God and his values. We deplore and denounce anything that we see as sexual deviation, and yet behind closed doors and in the recesses of our hearts, so often we give in to lust and sexual sin. We are disgusted when people misuse power and privilege. And yet sometimes, either knowingly or unknowingly, we leverage whatever power and privilege we have to serve self, to push our agenda, even if it marginalizes or pushes away other people. So this morning, I want you to think, before you point fingers at everything else in this world, ask yourself, how much am I caught up in the very things that I am denouncing and opposing. This world has an unyielding attraction. It pulls us in. 
We think that our identity is wrapped up in the things that this world says are so important. We think pleasure and happiness and those things that the world continually throws at us, those things matter most. And sometimes we talk a different game, but the truth is the way we live shows that we are really living as citizens of this kingdom on earth. And we sometimes even package it in spiritual language and we justify and we rationalize. But I wonder when God looks at us, when he calls us, when he knocks on our door, what is his message to us? You've lost your way. You're not on the right path. So in our text, you're going to see the word Babylon. Babylon obviously had a history in Israel's history. They were a world power that, that conquered the southern kingdom of Judah and sent the Jewish people, the Israelites, into Babylonian captivity, into exile. But every Jew reading or hearing Revelation being read in the assembly probably when they hear Babylon, they also know that Babylon's power didn't last long. Cyrus the Great of Persia came in and conquered them. And they know that Babylon represents something else, another kingdom. Because Babylon has come and gone. But they are living under the reign and the rule of whom? Rome. So when you see Babylon in our text, think the Roman Empire. And as you try to kind of get that all lined out in your mind, let me introduce yet another metaphor. And that is the great prostitute. That's the language that is used in our text. This great prostitute. And if you think about that, that's, that's a very effective metaphor. And as we see and we read about this prostitute, we see that, that she has this, this appeal. That she draws people to her. And I think that's why this metaphor is used for Babylon, for Rome, for any earthly power, any worldly force, any thing in this world that draws us to it and away from God. So we begin in Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. We will hear the report of what happens to Babylon, and then we will see the reaction of different people to what happens to Babylon. Verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Isn't that an interesting way to say it? This world has this appeal, this attraction, and it is causing people in the world to get drunk on the wine of its intoxicating allure. It's an interesting way to say how easy it is to follow the world. And what we read right here already in the very first verse of chapter 17 is that justice and judgment are coming. The report is that Babylon is facing a certain destiny, that this great prostitute has a fate. So who is this prostitute? Look at verse 3. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering 
with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with the abominable things of the filth of her adulteries. Very strong language used here. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. (laughs) You may have been called a lot of things, but you do not want to be called what Babylon is called here, what this great prostitute is called here, the mother of prostitutes. And it's written on her head. Remember last week, the mark of the beast, the mark of the Lord and of the Lamb? Whatever mark you bear, whatever mark you wear, shows who you belong to. Here, the prostitute clearly belongs to an earthly kingdom, Babylon, the Roman Empire. And what you're going to see in the entire second half of Revelation is yet another contrast, this time between this great prostitute and the bride of Christ. A contrast between two women. And we'll see in just a minute what the bride of Christ is wearing, but right here we're told what the great prostitute is wearing. She's wearing colors of purple and scarlet, the colors of wealth and power and influence. She has gold and precious stones and pearls, those things that draw us in, those things that have appeal. We might say in our language, material possessions, money, those things that look so good. That's what she's wearing. And she's holding what? A golden cup. A golden cup. You say, well, that sounds good. A cup made of gold. But what's on the inside of the cup? It is filled with abominable things, with the filth of her adulteries. (laughs) Straight language. Very descriptive language. On the outside, it looks like pure gold but on the inside it's filled with the filth of her adulteries. You see, here's the thing about Satan. He can make filth look attractive, can't he? Satan can make something that is awful, something that opposes God, something that is worldly and faithless look good. Look like something that you might... How many of you have ever dug through the trash for something? You ever lost your retainer? (laughs) Had to dig through the trash? Your car keys, a phone, maybe an important document, maybe the leftover donut from breakfast that now you decided you you want to eat the rest of it. (laughs) I'm not proud of it, but several years ago, I was in a dumpster. (laughs) I was in a dumpster with my friend David Duncan. Some of you know David. I told you I wasn't proud of it. I got a call from James Lauderdale, who was working at Oklahoma Christian at the time, and he said, it's the end of the semester, the students are moving out, and one of the students threw away a ton of baseball cards. They're in the dumpster right now. And we were there. And you can just picture us getting into the dumpster. I mean, that was pretty comical in and of itself. And we're standing inside this dumpster full of about, you know, 40 boxes and and other trash, and then like three inches of muck that we're standing in, going through these boxes, looking for baseball cards and just pulling out things. At the time, those cards were probably worth about two or three cents each. And now, they're worth about two or three cents each. (laughs) You know, sometimes we know there is filth all around us. And we think, well, it won't affect me. I won't smell bad, I won't get dirty. I can keep my distance. And so we flirt with the world. We see the golden cup. And before long, we're drinking of the filth inside it. The filth that Satan has put there. 
And I want you to notice who suffers as Babylon rises, as it gains power. Back in the text, verse 6, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people. Who is suffering? God's people. The blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. As Babylon increases, as it gains power, it steps on and oppresses God's people. This, this is referring to the martyrs who are faithful witnesses of Christ. They won't bow down to an emperor. They won't claim Caesar is Lord, and they will pay the price. And every time they do that, Caesar and Rome feels more empowered. But the tragedy of the martyrs is temporary. Their stories are not finished. Their lives can be redeemed. So listen to the fate of mighty Babylon. What's going to happen to this mighty nation? Remember, we're really talking about Rome. And if you back away from that, we're talking about any earthly power, any worldly thing. What's going to happen? Verse 8. The beast, which you saw, once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to what? It's destruction. That's its fate. It's going to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. So the beast holding the prostitute, this great prostitute, supporting Babylon's overtly godless, pagan, Christian-oppressing agenda will be destroyed. The appeal, the allure of anything in this world will come to an end. And the chapter goes on to describe how this great prostitute will find ruin. She will be brought to ruin. She'll be destroyed actually by, it says, the kings of the earth whom God will use to enact justice in this world. And just like every other earthly structure before and after it, just like Babylon fell, Rome will fall. Nothing in this earth, nothing in this world will last through eternity. Verse 14. They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with Him will be His called, chosen and faithful followers. So that's the report, that's the outcome the Babylons of the world will fall. The unfaithful prostitute will be brought to ruin. She will receive justice through judgment. And Jesus and his followers will be victorious. Look at the next chapter. It tells it very clearly. Chapter 18, verse 21. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. As powerful as the Roman Empire was, those first century Christians needed to know it will not stand. As powerful and influential and attractive as the things of this world are that pull us away from God, they will not stand. So now the reaction. How do people respond to the fall of Babylon? Well, there are many that have found their identity and their purpose and have prospered because of Babylon. How do you think they will respond? We hear about the kings of the earth, the merchants of the sea, 
and the merchants of the earth. First of all, the kings of the earth, chapter 18, verse 9. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. Continue in verse 11. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Keep going, verse 17. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. You see, everyone who had much to gain through this world power, now all of a sudden, as this power is fading, as it is smoking and burning and on fire, going away, they are trying to separate themselves from it. They are mourning the loss of this city. No, what are they mourning? Their own loss. Because they were wrapped up, they were tied up in everything Babylon, everything this earth, this world could give them. And now all of a sudden, they see that channel of prosperity being cut off. And it makes them sad. They are weeping because the things of the world do not last. They had everything to gain when Babylon was in power. And now that it has fallen, they have lost everything. And now they're trying to separate themselves from it. That's too late. But what about the response of the faithful followers of Christ, citizens of God's kingdom, heavenly kingdom? How do they respond to the fall of Babylon? How do you think they would respond? This Babylon that was, remember, getting drunk on the blood of God's people? How do you think they will respond? Chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Faithful followers of Christ respond as they should, recognizing that God is in control and that he will bring justice. He will bring justice. And nothing in this world, no matter how powerful or influential it looks or is, will stand against God. Nothing. And when we come to that realization, there is only one response, and that is to fall down in humility and worship the one and only God to declare him as most powerful, him as sovereign. No earthly person, no earthly kingdom, nothing this world offers, him and him alone. Chapter 19, look at verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Remember the contrast I mentioned before? This great prostitute with the bride of Christ. And what was the great prostitute wearing? She was wearing purple and scarlet, the colors of wealth and influence and power. And she had 
gold and, and pearls and precious stones, those things that, that tend to draw us in. And what is the bride of Christ wearing? Fine linen. Well, what does that mean? What does that represent? Well, we don't have to guess. He tells us right there, it's the acts of God's righteous people, the righteous acts of God's people. It is, it is representing the kingdom of God by how we live. So let's review. We have the report, what happens to Babylon? Babylon falls. We see the reaction by those who have aligned themselves with Babylon, the earthly power. They mourn and weep their own loss. And then we have the response of those who are citizens in God's kingdom, those who are faithful followers of Christ, recognizing that God brings justice. And they acknowledge the power, the sovereignty, the goodness of God. So as we begin to now sort of look for a handle on this message, something that you can grab onto and take with you this week, because I know, especially in Revelation, there is a lot going on, a lot to kind of work through. But as you sort of grab a handle, let me, let me offer one to you. Let me go back to the way we began. Maybe Jesus is calling you. Maybe in essence, this is a chance for a, a warning or a, a checkup to see how you're doing. Especially in light of this preview we get of all the things of the world and what will happen to them. Knowing that, knowing that the things in this world that the world says are so important, knowing they won't last, what does that mean for how you live now? We are told directly in our text what we should do. Chapter 18, verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of that city, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive the disasters that will come on her. What does he say? He says it's time to come out of Babylon. It's time to stop finding your identity and your purpose in the things of this world. All these promises the world makes, all these things that look so appealing, they will not give you what you need most. It's time to get out of Babylon. Stop being drawn into the appeal, the attraction of the things of this world. Someone has said this, and I think it's very true. For Christians today, the big challenge is not persecution from the world. It's seduction by the world. For these first century Christians, they were being persecuted severely. For us, let's be honest, persecution comes occasionally, if we could even call it that, maybe pressure, social pressure, embarrassment. I don't know that that's really our struggle as much as it is being drawn into a world that opposes the kingdom of God, but looks like gold on the outside. Are you with me? I saw this picture of an elk in the wild with a car tire around its neck. I just had so many questions. <laughs> How did that get there? You know, was he sitting around one day with his elk buddies and one of them said, I dare you, I double dog dare you. You know, did he lose a bet? What, <laughs> what happened? One of the other elks was playing ring toss when he wasn't looking. How did that get on his neck? People have reported that they've seen this elk in the wild for at least two years. 
So this thing has been carrying around this tire for at least two years. And when they finally looked at it, they said this thing weighed about 35 pounds because it was full of debris. (laughs) So they actually recently were able to capture the elk and eventually able to remove the car tire from its neck. Unfortunately, to get the car tire off, they had to cut the elk's antlers off. (laughs) They didn't have something to cut through the steel in the tire. And I'm thinking, if you're going to all the trouble to catch this thing, you should have the right tools for the job. But they cut off the the guy's horns and got the tire off. And so now, you know, he was the laughing stock of, and now he's the guy with no horns. But at least he's not carrying around the tire anymore. It's a silly picture, but I think it communicates something. Wildlife officials have actually said, you know, this isn't that uncommon. We see wildlife all the time getting entangled in things like swing sets and soccer goals and laundry lines and Christmas decorations, <laughs> all those things. I think this picture in many, in many ways is, is us. I think that's us. I mean, we, we see things in the world and they look intriguing and we're curious and we see that maybe they promise something that we want. Maybe it's something we can have that people around us don't have, and so we explore, we look at, we take a step off the trail, we check it out, and before you know it, we're stuck. And we're carrying around this burden. We're carrying around this baggage from the world that we can't get off on our own. We can't remove it. We need help. Maybe that's where you are this morning. Let this message from Revelation be a wake-up call. Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. He's calling. And just because you may not recognize the number means it doesn't mean you shouldn't answer. It means you should answer. Because maybe it's Jesus this morning calling you. And he's saying, listen, I'm, I'm a little worried that you're lost. I'm a little worried that you're carrying around the things of the world and trying to find your identity and your purpose and your happiness in those things that your allegiance is to the wrong kingdom. It's time to come back. Let me help you. Maybe that's what Jesus is saying this morning. He stands at the door and he knocks. Don't be drawn into the attraction of this world. The Roman Empire was powerful. It was the world's empire. And people were drawn into it. And yet, faithful followers of Christ declared Christ as Lord, no matter what it meant for them. Because they knew what we should know, that God is sovereign and that he will bring justice. He is the only one worthy of our allegiance. This morning, if you need help, reach out. Don't keep carrying that burden around. In just a minute, we're going to sing a song. We have a couple of shepherds and their wives in the parlor, a room right behind me. You can exit the auditorium and go there and they'll be happy to pray for you. They're going to pray anyway. They'll be happy to pray over you. Or you can come down to the front here and we'll do that as a church family. If you're online, you can go to our website and to our prayer page and reach out. Maybe today you're ready to declare Christ as Lord. Put him on in baptism. We would so much enjoy celebrating that with you. That wonderful decision to be a Christian. If there's something we can do today, we invite you to come as we stand and sing. Nearer 